If you will, turn with me this morning to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 2. In our text this morning will be the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. As we have our text this morning, it's known as to the church of Smyrna, the suffering church, the persecuted church. And in America today, this rings not really that familiar to us, does it? For about 400 years now in this land, We have experienced basically what no other brothers and sisters in Christ have really had. We have experienced the freedom to come and worship before God, unlike any other Christians ever have. And the country was founded, again, it's not, wasn't a Christian nation, but it was founded upon biblical principles in morality, and the freedom to worship according to one's own conscience. There was no state church like the Church of England, the Church of Scotland, and whatnot. We had the freedom to worship freely, and that has been a great blessing to us as Christians in this land. But now I do see Over this land of what's going on, I've only been a Christian for 20 years, but in my 20 years, I'm seeing somewhat of a shift where it looks like slowly the freedoms that we may have to worship may be slowly ebbing away. And I'm not a prophet. I cannot foresee into the future at all. Possibly by God's grace, there could become a revival again in this land of biblical proportions. We don't know. God has his own plans. But as I see the culture and the decline that's going on, I do possibly see that within the next generation or two, that the church in America may have to suffer for their faith. Now, we think of suffering as, well, this person called me a name. This person made fun of me, or these people don't want me included in their group, and I'm kind of marginalized. That's not suffering. True suffering possibly may come to us, 
where we actually may have to count the cost in our lives, whether it may be financially, maybe physically, possibly even with our lives. And today I want to talk about this because I think in the church in America we need to hear this. We need to hear suffering and we need to be ready for it. It's not all a bed of roses is what we hear in many churches today. It's not about our health. It's not about our wealth. It's not about us being liked by our co-workers and all of these. It's not self-help. This was a letter written to a church that was undergoing much persecution. And they got a word from the Lord that was there to encourage them and strengthen them. Of the seven letters to the churches, this is one that does not have a rebuke. There's only two of them, the church to Smyrna and the church to Philadelphia. But we don't have a rebuke here from Christ. But we have an encouragement to the believers who are living in a city called Smyrna. And I've titled this sermon today, Faithfulness in Persecution. Faithfulness in Persecution. So, but I want, before I get into the text, I want to read a little, just about a paragraph or two from this book that I bought, that I heard one pastor that was doing a podcast said it basically changed his whole outlook. It's called Preparation for Suffering. It's by the Puritan John Flavel. And basically, he's basically telling the people that you should be prepared. Get ready for suffering. And I just want to read this one chapter, or not this chapter, but a few paragraphs here that really struck a chord in me. Dismal clouds of indignation are gathering over our heads, charged with double destruction. Should the Lord please to make them break upon us, we can't imagine the rage of Satan to be abated now that his kingdom hastens to its period, nor have his instruments grown less cruel and skillful to destroy. The land, yes, has enjoyed a long rest, and this generation is acquainted with little more of martyrdom than what the histories of the former times inform us. Yet let no man befool himself with a groundless expectation of continuing tranquility. Augustine thinks that the bloody sweat which overran the body of Christ in the garden signified the sharp and grievous sufferings in which his mystical body should afterward endure. Indeed, it is a truth that these are also called the remains of Christ's suffering. Colossians 1, 24. His personal sufferings were indeed completed at his resurrection. The cup was full to the brim to which no drop of sufferings can ever be added. But his sufferings in his mystical body are not yet full. By his personal sufferings, he fully satisfied the wrath of God. But the sufferings of his people have not yet satisfied the wrath of men. Though millions of precious saints have shed their blood for Christ, whose souls are now crying under the altar, How long, Lord? How long? Yet there are many more coming on behind in the same path of persecution. Much Christian blood must yet be shed before the mystery of God is finished. Notwithstanding this lucid interval, the clouds seem to be returning again after the rain. Thus you see, thus you see, to what grievous sufferings the merciful God has sometimes called his dearest people. 
So that's a very, I kind of meditated upon that and I could possibly see that being us. Now, let's get into our text. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. Now, to the angel. And I know I talked about, I haven't preached since October 17th when I did the church of Ephesus. But to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Again, this word literally means a messenger, angelos. I don't believe it's a literal angel. Again, because angels are never leaders in the church. I believe it's talking about the human teachers, the leaders, the elder, the pastor of the church. So to the pastor of the church in Smyrna, right. Now Smyrna, a little bit of history here, and I find this fascinating. There's all kinds of stuff with these churches that if you dig into the history of them and actually what went on and all of these things, it's very, very interesting. But I'm just going to talk a little bit on the surface of the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was a city on the coast of Asia Minor on the Aegean Sea. So it's on the west coast of what we call Turkey today, but it was Asia Minor back in Roman times. It's about 40 miles north of the city of Ephesus. It rivaled Ephesus and claimed to be the finest city of Asia for its very picturesque beauty. It had many grand buildings, the biggest theater in all of Asia was there, and it was accented by a beautiful mount called Mount Pegos, which was known as the crown of Smyrna. The word Smyrna means sweet-smelling, which was synonymous with myrrh, the substance which was used to perfume dead bodies. It had famous schools of medicine and science, its harbor was beautiful, and it was purported as one of the greatest harbors in all of the Roman Empire and had great wealth and trade. It's the only city, well, it's still cities exist today, but it still exists today, is called the city of Izmir today. And basically, the official name change came in 1930. It was called Smyrna up until that point, but in 1930, they switched the name to Izmir. Some old inhabitants of the city still call it Smyrna. In modern, Izmir is the third biggest city in Turkey with four million people. But you can still see many of the ancient ruins of ancient Smyrna today in the city of Izmir. In all probability, Paul found the church of Smyrna on his third missionary journey in the year 53 to 56. But to understand this letter, its key is to understand that Smyrna was a very staunch ally to Rome and to the emperor of Rome. It was a hotbed for emperor worship. Under Domitian, it was a capital offense, you get the death penalty, to refuse to offer the yearly sacrifice to the emperor. Their faithfulness and loyalty to Rome actually became a proverbial saying within the Roman Empire. Smyrna had a very refined Greco-Roman culture, and it was purely pagan to its core in philosophy and practice. It also had a very big Jewish community there because of a lot of the trade. And there's a lot of other history in Smyrna um, where a lot of the Muslims came in um, during the time of the Ottomans and killed a lot of the Christians there. And also in the early 20th century, a lot of 
you know, the Turks came in there or and they killed a lot of the Christians during you know times in, in World War One and one. So it has very fascinating history, but I'm not going to delve that much into that. But it's a very interesting city. So to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Let's first stop here. The words, the words of the first and the last. As you go through suffering, as these Christians are going through suffering, as you may go through suffering, what is your anchor? What is your hope? What is your source of strength during times of persecution and suffering? Nothing else but the word of God, right? The word of God is the anchor to your soul. The word of God needs to be hidden in your heart. It needs to be read. It needs to be memorized. It needs to be studied. No more excuses on it. Make time every day to be into the word of God and to memorize it. Well, I got a bad memory. I can't memorize it and take time to do it. If secular actors and actresses can memorize lines for two-hour movies, why can't we as Christians memorize some verses of Scripture? And if the Bible does get taken away from you and you're thrown in a prison cell, you are not going to have this. You're only going to have what's hidden in your heart. So start memorizing and reading the word of God. Don't take it for granted. Thousands and millions of men and women died and shed their blood so you could have a copy of this. Now we have it in abundance. We have it on our phones. We have it everywhere. And we take it for granted. Stop taking it for granted and learn the word of God. Memorize it. Take delight in it. Don't have it just be a religious checkbox, but know the word of God. This is going to be your anchor in the time of your affliction and in the time of your suffering. The word of Christ is your shield in persecution. So the words, see the words of the first and the last. Now, the words of the first and the last. This is an Old Testament title for God. Let's look at it for a second. Go to Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. Isaiah 44 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Then go a couple pages over. To Isaiah 48 in verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. Christ now, as he did in chapter 1 in verse 17. And now he says this in chapter 2. And he also says this at the end of the book. In chapter 22, verse 13, Christ now is applying this title to himself. What's being said here? Christ here affirms his equality of nature with God the Father. Christ is God. He is the first And he is the last. By him all things were made. He is before all things. He was with God and he is very God himself. Christ is the great I am. He is the eternal word. He is Yahweh. So next time you get this, 
Yeah, we're from the Watchtower. Oh, you don't believe, believe, you believe Jesus was a created being? Oh, really? Here he says he's the first and the last. He's taking the title of what the Father calls himself in the Old Testament and now is applying that to himself. Christ is equating himself with God the Father. And God's worship belongs to no man, to nobody else. God won't give his glory to anyone else. So if Christ is not God, this is blasphemy. But it's not, because Christ is God. He is the eternal God himself. And now Christ is applying these words to himself. I am the first. I am the last. Jesus is the sovereign over all. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life again. And he came to life again. What did we just celebrate a couple weeks ago? The resurrection of Christ. This is an interesting designation. It's comforting, right? To a people, a church facing persecution and death. Even though they may die, their God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has conquered death. He died and he came to life again. So don't fear. If we are united with him, we will also be raised with him. Christ was dead and died for our sins to satisfy the wrath of his Father and to make atonement for our sins. But he rose again on the third day for our justification, and he's alive forevermore. And he now lives forever to make intercession for us. And we can come to him at his throne of grace, especially in the time of need, especially in the time of persecution, especially in the time of suffering, because he has conquered death. So we can come, him, come to him when facing our death, because he is the resurrection. He is the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This gave them the strength. It was the words of their God, the first and the last. He died, but yet he came to life. And all of those who will share in Christ will also die. Yes, they will pay the penalty for the sin of Adam, but they will come to life again at the resurrection. So this gives them hope in their suffering, that Jesus is their God, that he is the first and the last, that he is their sovereign, and he died and came to life again as the first fruits, and that that will also be imparted to the suffering believers as well. Now, verse 9, I know your tribulation and poverty. Stop there. I know your tribulation and poverty. Tribulation literally means to be afflicted. It means to be pressed down and feel tremendous pressure which burdens and crushes the spirit. Now, there was an old Roman form basically of torture to get enemies to basically recant things. They basically would place a big stone upon someone and they could say recant. The person would say no. Then it would drop a little bit more. Recant. No. And then if they didn't, then they would drop the full force of the boulder and crush the person to death. This is where we kind of get the same word here for tribulation. 
Again, it means friction. It means to be pressed and feel tremendous pressure, which burdens and crushes. So Jesus said, I know. I know your tribulation. And I know your poverty. Poverty literally means, in this context, not just to be poor, well, I'm a little bit poor, and can you give me a loan for 200 bucks? Poverty here literally means, in this context, to be destitute. To be as poor as to the point of begging. The Christians were facing severe persecution to the point that they had nothing. If you've, in a lot of Roman contexts, if you believed in Christ and you were a Christian, you were basically cut off from everything. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't do anything. Basically, you were to the point of being destitute in a lot of contexts in the Roman Empire. So these people, they were they had poverty. They had nothing. They were branded as rebels by the Roman authorities. Basically, much of Smyrna's social construct basically revolved around pagan emperor worship. And the Christians didn't participate. So they were looked at as enemies of the state. And just kind of a little bit of a side note on that. Whenever Christians, most of the time, the Christians have suffered around the world. Yes, it ultimately was because of their faith in Christ. But to the unbelieving world, they'll basically say, well, I don't care that you're a Christian. You're an enemy of the state. You're a rabble rouser. You're a rebel. And much of us today are looked at not as, well, you're a Christian. You're an enemy of the government. You say all of these things. And you're looked at as an enemy of the state. Most of Christian suffering throughout the years, yes, ultimately was for their faith in Christ, but they were looked at as enemies of the state. And as we kind of see in our culture today, that's kind of what's being labeled upon us. You're an enemy to the government. Look at all of these things and silly things that you want to do. But take note. Christ takes special note of their suffering, of their tribulation, of their poverty. This is why, this right here, just this little statement by Christ, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Right there, this, this destroys all of this health and wealth gospel nonsense that can only exist in, in a present day, sometimes like we have it today. But the earliest Christians, they were known for their suffering. They weren't known to have all of the most fancy clothes and fancy things that the culture had to provide. They were treated as garbage in the society, and they knew that, and they were willing to die and sacrifice for that. It wasn't a message of be happy and healthy and wealthy and anything you demand in the name of God, he's going to give it to you and just believe it and visualize it in your mind and you will have it. This is clearly contrary to what the Bible teaches us. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. God has never promised Christians an easy life here. Actually, he's probably promised us the exact opposite if you're truly living for Christ. So all of this nonsense that is going on today in the name of Christ isn't Christian at all. It's basically pagan therapeutic 
nonsense. So if anyone comes to you with that, that's completely nonsensical. It wouldn't fit at all to the church of Smyrna. But God knows, Jesus knows their tribulation. And again, I mentioned this before when I talked about the church of Ephesus. But God knows. He's not a distant God. He's not a God who is afar off. He is a God who is near, that we can draw near to. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Submit to him, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So draw near to Christ. And he knows. He knows what you're going through. So I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. But you are rich. What? I'm going through all of this anguish. I'm, I'm destitute. But, what? but you are rich. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, The worldling's gold is their God. But to the Christian, God is their gold. They may have not had earthly wealth, but they were rich in the spiritual and the eternal. They were rich in God's mercy and grace. Many who are rich in the temporal sense, monetary sense, are poor in the spiritual. Money never truly will satisfy the soul. There's nothing wrong with having money. If God has blessed you with wealth, amen. Praise God for that. But that money, material things, is never going to truly satisfy the soul. This is why we see many millionaires and famous people commit suicide. Well, why would they do that? They have everything they want, everything they need. They can do whatever they want. But they're still miserable in life. Yes, because they're missing the chief end and the reason why man was created, and that's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They're going to get no enjoyment out of their wealth, ultimately. Ultimately, that's going to prove to be futile in a dust, and it's going to be gone. So only the Lord Jesus Christ can truly satisfy. The spiritual satisfaction of having Christ is better than anything the world can ever give. But until you realize you're a lost soul, you're never going to understand this. It's not going to make sense to you. It's kind of like the analogy. Would you rather have a million dollars or a case of bottled water? Well, I'd rather have a million dollars. Well, give me the million dollars. But if you were destitute in the middle of the desert, dying of dehydration, you would say, forget the million dollars, give me the water. And until somebody can truly understand their spiritual plight, they're going to think the pleasures of this world are something good and something to be sought after until they see their true spiritual plight. Then when they see the true spiritual plight, they will say, forget the world and all that. Give me Christ. That's all that I need. That's what my soul needs. So Smyrna typifies the spiritual richness of faithful suffering churches throughout history. Again, all of these seven churches are churches that exist through that time to the end of time. They actually will show different, it's not phases through church history, but different types of churches that exist throughout this age. And there is a persecuted church. But again, those persecuted churches are usually the most pure. They're usually the most on fire for God, and you would almost think the opposite. But they're not, because they're experiencing the true glories of their salvation. And they truly know what it is to hold on to Christ. In that book, The Preparations for Suffering, I also have this quote. He had rather their hearts should be heavy with adversity than vain and careless under prosperity. 
the choicest spirits have been exercised with the sharpest sufferings, and those that now shine as stars in heaven have been trod underfoot as dung upon this earth. So, some of the greatest spiritual people who have suffered for Christ, they were the poorest. They suffered most afflictions. They were treated as dung upon this earth. But now they shine bright as stars in God's glory, in, the, in God's glory in heaven. So, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. And he knows the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So he knows the slander or the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews. So these Christians in Smyrna were not only getting it from the secular, the Romans, but they were also getting persecuted by the religious, the Jews. All throughout the New Testament, we see that much of the persecution that came to the first generation of Christians was from the Jews. They vilified the Messiah and they vilified his followers. They would often eagerly accuse Christians before the tribunals. This group in Smyrna, so there was a big group of Jewish people in Smyrna. This group in Smyrna were no different. They were filled with blasphemy, slander, antagonism against all of the Christians. And they thought that they were the synagogue of God. They thought they were doing God's work. But they really weren't. They were the synagogue of the devil. They were the synagogue of Satan. They thought they were in covenant with God, but they weren't. They were no better than the pagan Gentiles. God, the New Testament, and God always defines his people in relation to Christ and not in bloodlines of the flesh. Rome, Romans chapter 2, I want to go to a couple verses in Romans. Romans chapter 2 in verse 28 and 29, say this. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. And then in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, verse 6, it says this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel or are Israel. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 Galatians 3.29, it says this. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So that's what a true descendant of Abraham is. He may be a Gentile in the flesh, but if he has the, which Abraham was also, but if he has the faith in Christ, then he truly is Abraham's offspring, and he's an heir according to the promise. 
The guy that's at the wailing wall right now, he's not Abraham's seed. He may have his physical bloodline of being a Jew, but if he rejects Christ, he's not Abraham's seed. The Gentile standing here right now is Abraham's true seed who has faith in Christ. But as we see, the slander of those who said they were Jews, they really weren't. They thought they were doing God's work, but they were actually doing the devil's work. So the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are really a synagogue of Satan. Any religious building, whether it's a temple, whether it's a mosque, whether it's a church, whether it's a shrine, whatever it may be, any religious building and its inheritance which are in opposition to the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ, are the synagogues of Satan. They're not just other people finding their ways to God. They're of their father, the devil, and they worship in temples of devil. And it's the synagogue of Satan. Satan means accuser. Oh, how does even all the false Christians today accuse believers? They accuse true believers. And they claim they're doing God's work. So one thing that you need to understand, if suffering ever does come here to this land, your suffering isn't going to be noble. You won't be looked at as a hero or a person dying valiantly. You'll be looked at as a person who basically deserves this. Persecution will come to America to the true Christians not because we are Christians, but because we are going to be looked at as the opposite of what a true Christian really is. You're going to be looked at as a crazy, radical, fundamentalist who don't know the true ways of Christianity. Because the true way of Christianity is about peace and love and tolerance. And look at you. You're an exclusivist, bigot, hate-filled, radical, fundamental, crazy, backwards guy. And you know what? It's better if you just be put down or put away in silence somewhere in a prison, or better yet, you'd probably just be killed. So again, your suffering under persecution won't be looked at as noble. It'll be looked at as a good thing. You've got to get the weeds out of here, and you're the weed. So again, we need to take this into account. But what does Jesus say? I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. You are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't fear. Oh, how can anyone not fear? Who is able to stand? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about, well, what if I was faced in a situation with death or torture? How could I stand? How did the apostles stand? How did they do this? How, how could a guy go to a stake and be burned alive? How could a person be thrown into a gladiator pit and basically have hyenas and lions rip them to shreds? How could they do that? How can we do that? Well, nobody. We can't. In and of ourselves, we won't be able to stand. But a person who is filled with God's Spirit, 
who knows God's word and is armed with it concerning this persecution can stand. We can only stand, though, by the grace of God. You must have this resolve beforehand. You have to take some time and think and meditate upon counting the cost and what it may actually cost you someday. You've got to take this. You've got to have a resolve beforehand. So start meditating on this subject today. I know it may seem, well, that's, uh, but start thinking about it. Think about how I could stand. How will I stand on these days? God will give us the strength when the time comes. And some of these people that you've read, some of the accounts in Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's only by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that these people were able to stand. And it's only by that same work where you're going to be able to stand. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do unto me? Psalm 56 and verse 11. This is not only a word of encouragement, but it's a command. So don't be enslaved by your fears. Don't let fear enslave you. Your faith will be tried, but God will be your shield. You have to settle this in your mind. So don't fear. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. And Christ also went through his sufferings as well. So he knows. He knows what suffering is. But behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that your faith may be tested. So the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so your faith will be tested. Persecution is always meant for evil, but God means it for good. Remember now that the devil is God's devil. He cannot do what God does not permit. Remember the book of Job. God pur purposed the suffering so that he would be tested to prove the genuineness of their faith. True faith can never be destroyed. It may stumble, it may falter, it may fall, but true faith can never be destroyed. The devil stirs and awakens his instruments, wicked men, to persecute God's people. Tyrants, politicians, ecclesiastical heretics, those are all the devil's tools. But God, again, will never let them succeed against a true believer. And why? Why is that? Go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. In verse 31 and 32. So Luke 22 verses 31 and 32. And here's your comfort. Here's your comfort here. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is the only reason you can overcome. Christ will be interceding for you. The Spirit will be interceding for you that your faith will not fail. So during times of testing and persecution, still take heart even though the devil will try all that he can to get you to falter and fall and to sift you as wheat, take heart, 
Christ is praying for you. Christ is interceding for you. So your faith will not fail you. And then he says these words. Be faithful unto the death. Well, first off, I, I skipped that. You may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. So we see Satan's going to do this work, but for ten days you will have tribulation. So God sets this time. So see how God is sovereign? He's still in control of all things. God is directing all of this. We see the sovereignty of God. You will have tribulation for ten days. God sets a time frame. Satan can do nothing more apart from God's decree. Now, I know there's, I've read a lot of commentaries. There's a lot of debate on what this actually means. I ultimately don't know what it means, but what I think it means, I just believe it's just symbolic for a short period of time. God is in control. You will have suffering, yes, and some, you may even have to die, but it's just going to be for a short period of time, I'm in control. And then he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So here, right here, God is calling you to be faithful unto the death. Though the persecution may be short, it may call for the lives of some. You might have to die. Someday you may have to die for your faith. Millions upon millions have sealed their testimony for Christ in their blood. This may be God's wonderful plan for their life. Have you ever considered that someday you could be called to die for your faith? This is very sobering. Please meditate upon it. Don't neglect it. Think about it. But what is your hope in contemplating this? Well, Jesus gives the answer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. What's your hope? A crown of life. We have a sure reward. Christ says he will give the crown of life to faithful believers. Now, what is the crown? The crown is Stephanos in the Greek. It's a victor's crown. The crown is the wreath of victory and what is this victory its reward and its culmination the reward and the crown and the victory isn't in this life it's in the life to come and it's eternal life where you will behold the face of God the life that is worn out in the service for God and that is laid down for his cause shall be rewarded in the next life which is much, much better and eternal. So be faithful unto the death. Because why? You're not getting a crown in this life. You'll get the crown of thorns in this life. But in the next life to come, Christ will grant you the Stephanos, the victor's crown, the victor's wreath. And that's ultimately eternal life in the presence of the Lamb and of God. So be faithful unto the death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, a spiritual ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Churches, plural. 
It just wasn't this church, but there's going to be many churches throughout the history of God's kingdom that are going to suffer in the same way that the Smyrnans did. And it may come here someday. And what does he say? And the one who conquers, and the one who overcomes, and the one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. All men will die. That's the penalty that we receive in Adam. We will deserve our wages. We will die. So all men will die, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, all men are physically going to die. We all will receive our wages for our sin, which is death, Romans 6.23. But although believers will die, and some in the most vile, violent, cruel ways in persecution, the believer will never experience the second death. You see, on the last day, all men will be raised, some to eternal life and some to eternal punishment. The wicked will be raised eternally with a new body, and they will be condemned for their evil deeds in the lake of fire. And that's the second death. The second death, though, has no longer any power over the partakers of the first resurrection. And the partakers of the first resurrection are those who have been born again by God's Spirit. We have been raised to new life. That's the first resurrection. We will never again, though, suffer the second death. Because we were raised to newness of life in Christ. And though these bodies may die, our spirit will never die. Our spirit will be forever with Christ. But the unbeliever, he has a fate that awaits him called the second death. And that's in conscience torment in a place called the lake of fire. And he asked me to describe that. I can't because my words can't probably do any justice to what awaits those who have rejected God and his justice awaits them. All as I know, it's a bad place, and you don't want to be there. So yes, you may suffer on this side. God hasn't promised you a bed of roses. We may have to die for his name and his name's sake. But God has promised us through Christ that he will be with us and that he will ultimately then give us the victor's crown and will give us eternal life. So if you are here today and you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, nothing that you could ever do could ever merit God's salvation. Your works only add to your damnation. If you're here today, this is what awaits you, is the second death. But repent and trust in Christ today. And even though you may have to suffer on this side of heaven, God has a sure reward for you. And if you are here today and you're a Christian and you feel weak and anemic in your faith and you say, how could I ever stand to this? You can't. But rely upon Christ. Go to his word. Study Christ's word. Be in prayer. Rely on his spirit. Eternalize his word into your heart. And know that this may be the lot for you, but God knows what's best for you, even though you may not like it. But God has this for us. So basically, that is the message today. Repent, believe on Christ, and you won't face the second death. If you're a Christian here today, renew and strengthen your faith and read some of the stories of some of the martyrs who have went before us. Read some of those stories. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. 
and see what some of these men endured for their faith. And it will strengthen you. Yeah, it may sometimes curl your stomach some of the things that some of these men went and women went through. Even children have went through. But they sealed their testimony and their blood. And God gave this letter not just to the Smyrna Christians, but to us as well to strengthen our faith in him. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. And sometimes, Lord, your word just penetrates and cuts deep, Lord. But I thank you for this word today. Let it be an encouragement to our souls. Let it strengthen us in our faith in you, Lord. And let us know that your word is a comfort to us, Lord. And it guides us through this dark and dying world. And Lord, even though we live in a time of peace and tranquility right now, we do not know when this may end. So let us be prepared. Let us be ready. And let us be ready to seal our testimonies in our blood if the need would be. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. Strengthen us today in the power of your Son and through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.